Hi, this is Nathan Johnson. In our countdown of the top 10 most difficult sermons delivered by Eric Ludi, number one is a doozy. A cult is a subject that most of us simply don't want to face. But face it, we must. For if the saints lose their watchfulness and discernment, the enemy moves into the church with speed and precision. This particular message took guts to give and will take guts to listen to. May it prove true that this message becomes a thorn in the side of every spiritual manipulator in the world. Now we are excited to present the number one most difficult sermon delivered by Eric Ludi in this encore edition of A Cult Leader's Worst Nightmare. The dangers of the words cults and cult leader. It's going to be a very strange message. I've met a lot of strange people in my journeys, and I'm very, very, very slow to use words like cults and cult leader. Cults and cult leader tend to be the words used by ignorant people to describe things that they're uncomfortable with. We as the body of Christ must grow up to have discernments and to have understanding to be able to separate out those that might even be slightly misled from those that are kooks from those that are conspiratorially attempting to destroy the body of Christ. So we need to have discernment and to be able to weigh our words. And as we go through this, the one thing I want to happen in us is for us to be very watchful of our souls and to allow the Spirit of God to inspect us in how we have used our tongue, in how we have basically labeled or tagged things around us that maybe we didn't like or didn't prefer. Ignorance is not meant to reign in the body of Christ. And yet, for the most part, because we've separated from the word of God, and we would rather be taught through Hollywood and through pastors showing us film clips and then trying to allude of how that somehow relates to the kingdom of heaven, our understanding of the actual text of scripture is almost non-existent in the church of Jesus Christ today. As a result, we are ripe for the picking when it comes to the enemy's invasion into our ranks. This is an extremely important message. I feel the weight of it in my soul. How it applies to us at first blush may be like, what what does this have to do with us? By the way, when I say a cult leader's worst nightmare, what I mean is this message, I want it to be a cult leader's worst nightmare. I want... For anyone who has a nest, for anyone who has a controlling, manipulative thumb over the body of Christ, I want that to be exposed. And anyone who is trapped underneath the manipulative thumb of anything satanic, I want that to be exposed in our souls. Do you know that you do not need to be in a group or a cluster of people to be under the thumb of Satan? The very behavior of Satan itself is to control and to manipulate the outcomes of your life and behavior and thought patterns. So the very nature of sin itself is based on the same premise. And so as we begin to expose the premise of how sin works in our life, you'll begin to realize that's the same way that men and women on this earth that are very cunning will leverage the exact same pattern over our soul to control us. So... If you guys have the guts to go through this with me, let's embark. What is a cult? Well, it's a strange religious environment that is not patterned after the Bible in its discipleship method, but rather built upon the satanic elements of human control and manipulation. 
In short, a cult is an environment masquerading under the banner of a pure and godly-sounding religious intent, but that is, in fact, maliciously seeking the control and manipulation of human souls unto their eternal destruction. Do not be quick to tag something with that description. There can be micro or semi-cult behaviors in an environment because that's called the flesh. And when the flesh is allowed to rule in the church of Jesus Christ, did you know that you have this? But at a micro level, not at the level of what we would typically look at as Jim Jones and David Koresh, where people are wearing white robes and drinking Kool-Aid to their eternal destruction and damnation. That is what could almost be called the hyperbolized understanding of cult control and manipulation. However, when the flesh is not dealt with properly in the gospel that is presented in the church of Jesus Christ, did you know that at a micro level, in any church, in any religious group, you have manipulation and control, but it might not necessarily be from a human agent. It's from a spiritual agent known as the flesh. That is how the enemy works. The enemy is looking for those who will carry out his mission. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are meant to be freed from the power of the old man who could be called the ultimate cult leader. He's a cult leader within our bodies. And he will control and manipulate us and diminish the Spirit's work in our life. And he will, to our destruction, hold us in bondage. Well, the enemy functions the exact same way if he can find a man or a woman of a cunning disposition that has a design to destroy the body of Christ, guess what? He will manipulate with the same exact tactics that the flesh uses in all of our lives. As a result, because many of us, okay, all of us, have been controlled by the flesh to some degree in our life up to this point, hopefully, most of us, if not all of us, have been set free from that, but that's, that's, again, where this message goes, not where it starts. We can actually recognize this message. This is simply the behavior of the flesh and the power of sin over our souls. So what is a cult leader? Again, I want us to be very watchful not to use that phraseology and that tag quickly and lightly, because this is serious stuff. It's a master manipulator of people. It's a man or woman playing the part of the sincere religious, but who in actuality is really nothing more than an expert liar and con man. The cult leader aims to subtly direct the youthful enthusiasms of innocent religious zeal away from God and toward himself or herself. He or she, and I know some of you are thinking, she? Yes, she. He or she does this through elaborate means of manipulation and human control techniques. Now, before I go into anything beyond this, I have traveled the world and been in churches. And so if you were to ask me, I mean, hundreds of churches, I've seen all sorts of different types. And if you were to say, so how common is it that you would run into a cult? Well, very rarely does a cult invite someone in from the outside. Okay, so that's one thing. So very rarely am I going to see that up close. At the same time, I have definitely seen fleshly manipulative tactics used in the body. Okay, but it's, at a certain level, it's done in ignorance. The same way where many of us have lived out our Christian life, and we have allowed the flesh to lead in our Christian life, we didn't know any different. And so if someone called us a cult leader, it would be a little bit of an extreme tag upon our situation. Are we living in sin? Absolutely. Are we healthy? No, we're not. However, to properly describe something like this is to literally say it's purposeful. 
This is a demonic attempt to destroy the body of Christ. I'm not exactly sure how Satanists work together when they get together in their little groups. Okay? It happens, by the way. But they don't invite me. Okay? So when they get together and they conspire, what are they conspiring to do? Their great opposition is Jesus Christ. It's the church of Jesus Christ in this world. Their agenda is to invade it and to undermine it. Okay? And if they're going to wield a tactic in the church of Jesus Christ, what tactic are they going to wield? They're going to wield the same tactic that the enemy wields in our own soul. The enemy is a master manipulator. He is the cult leader. The enemy of our soul, the serpent, is literally the original con man. He is the one that builds con men. He's the father of lies and deceit. And so as we walk through this, you're going to begin to realize, wait a minute. Aha! I see that. In other words, I'm not looking for you to go up and go out and break up cults. I want Jesus Christ to invade your soul to break up any cult regime that Satan has set up inside of us as the church. This is not allowed in the church of Jesus Christ. We're the ones that are free from this. And that's why the message of the gospel is so critical. And when the truth comes and bears itself upon the saints of God, this behavior cannot stand. So the original cult leader, eh, the serpent. Look at this scripture, Genesis 3.1. Now watch the subtlety and craft. You see, the enemy is purposeful. You know, this isn't an accident where the enemy is just sort of hanging out in a tree one day. And he sees Eve come along, and he has, you know, just a thought to help her out. No, there's nothing genuine and authentic and nice about what's going on in this situation. The enemy has an agenda, and it's literally to undermine the integrity of Eve's soul. So watch how this works. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The first thing he does is ply the word of God with question. He casts doubt upon something that is long-held truth. And you need to realize this is exactly how the enemy works in any type of cult situation. He has bonus knowledge. Watch how this works. He has bonus knowledge, something that God isn't telling them. How do you woo someone away from something that is stable? They're not telling you everything. You see, I know things that they aren't willing to tell you. They don't want you to realize this. So just follow this. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the servant, Well, we may eat the, tree, eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die? For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What has he just done? He has cast a slur against God. He has basically called God a liar. That God is attempting to control you and manipulate you. Who's the one attempting to control and manipulate in this situation? It's the serpent, but who is he casting the doubt upon? The one who actually desires freedom in the soul of Adam. This is the great technique of the enemy to cast actually the doubt and the the slur upon the innocent. Meanwhile, to be considered the one helping out. 
The one that's just trying to aid and abet truth. Sin. The great soul cult. Now, if you're living in sin, I know this doesn't sound very healthy, but you're in a cult. You are literally being manipulated and controlled by something outside of you. Isn't that a terrible sounding thing? Yeah. See, that's what we need to be calling a cult in Christianity. Living in sin. You know how much of the church today is not dealing straight with the gospel and the words of scripture to the point where they are literally in bondage? And they are living under the thumb of the enemy. So the cult leader, the flesh. The cult follower, self. Okay, so here's just a basic overview of it. For those of you that have ever heard my message, uh, The Body, where it talks about, you know, we imagine that this is a rib cage and this is like we're inside of our actual body. And so let's be inside of Eric's body when I was living in sin. Is there's this back end room in here, we call it the director's chamber, and in it there's a director's chair. Whoever sits in that chair is in charge and responsible and culpable for everything that takes place inside of this operation known as the human body. Whoever sits in that director's chair, I mean, defines everything. Sin, by the most basic definition, is me, self, usurping and taking that position that is actually not mine. You see, this body was built by God for God, and that throne or that director's chair actually belongs to God. But in the garden, the enemy, the serpent, came to Eve and baited her and said, God shouldn't sit in that throne. That throne belongs to you. You see, God doesn't want you to know that. You could be like God if you sat in that throne. And guess what? With this bonus extra information, which was all a lie, self took a seat and a position of control in the human body. And guess what? Self is actually still not in control. It was a lie. You see, what happened is it empowered something known as the flesh, which is the principle of sin. Self on the throne, body ruled by flesh, is the principle of sin in our body. And this old man, this, I always call him about six foot eight, you know, his huge belly, burps and scratches, has his scraggly chin, he's always popping white donuts, and he has donut powder all over his uh, grizzled chin. He's a disgusting character. Every other word is a belch. But he rules this body. He is the cult leader. And guess who he works for? Satan himself. Satan has you right where he wants you. He has you in his cult. Because you can't get out of that position. Any of you that have ever been near a controlling church body, you understand this. You're suffocating. And you don't know how to escape. You literally think through and lay in bed at night trying to figure out how you can get out of this. But your life is so miserably entangled, you don't know what to do. Doesn't that sound like our lives spiritually? How do, I, how do I escape this defeat? I'm so tired of it. We have no solution in ourselves. But I have a wonderful solution for every single one of us. Jesus! Jesus sets us free. He comes in and literally takes the flesh, throws them outside this body, literally denies his ability to overtake us anymore, sets us free and unties the ropes that are holding us in that chair. And he takes his rightful position. And suddenly this body is no longer ruled by an old man. It is ruled by a new man. As I always say, old management is out. New management comes in. And that's Christianity. The modern Jesus cult. We could call it flesh-controlled Christianity. You see, there's a whole bunch of us that under the banner of Jesus, 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 singing songs about Jesus, 
But guess what? If it's flesh-controlled Christianity, this is the modern Jesus cult. We are actually not controlled by Jesus. Let's just be honest. We can read his words, but they're not controlling us. We can't actually live this. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, turn the other cheek. He says, be perfect as I am perfect, or be holy as he is holy. Yeah, right. And when they falsely accuse you, you leap for joy? How many in the church are actually doing this? They have peace that passes understanding, joy that is effervescent and overflowing? Who lives like this? Christians live like this. However, we have an entire system that we are around that literally is controlled by the flesh. This is actually a very serious issue in the body of Christ. And so unless it is addressed and unless we pinpoint what the devil is doing in our midst, he will continue to do it. So listen to this. This is the description. This is the same description I had about what a cult is earlier. Now in regards to the Jesus cult, now think about our lives living under sin and the control of the flesh. It creates a strange religious environment inside our body that is not patterned after the Bible in its discipleship method, but built upon the satanic elements of human control and manipulation. In short, a cult is an environment masquerading under the banner of pure and godly sounding religious intent. What do we say when we come together? Amen, hallelujah. We say it all right, but what's really going on? Sort of a strange, bizarre environment inside of our body. Something's not healthy in here. And yet we're giving off the, this visage and this image that we're healthy. No, we're strong, uh, dear brother. Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. But that is, in fact, maliciously seeking the control and manipulation of human souls unto their eternal destruction. Now, your intent may not be to control others. But I'll tell you what, the flesh, that's exactly what its intent is. It's to destroy you and it's to destroy others in the church through you. You see, if the flesh is allowed to control even one within this body, he will be leveraged to the fullest extent to destroy this body. We as the church of Jesus Christ do not give voice to the flesh in our atmosphere. If someone wants to start barking out what the flesh is wanting to say, out, sequester. That's my term, sequester. No, we don't allow that. That isn't what we want to hear. We want to hear what God is saying. We want to hear the words of truth and life and light, not what the flesh wants to bark. We all... Most of us know that it's not a good thing to be perpetrators of fleshly behavior, fleshly words. If you've been married for any time at all, you know that you can be the nicest guy uh, to anyone here in this congregation. And the moment you leave this room, you can be very harsh, very demeaning, and very difficult to deal with behind closed doors. Well, you know what? That is a breach in the church of Jesus Christ. We are representatives of what the Spirit of God wants to do in this earth. And if we allow the manipulative controlling tactics of the enemy any sway within our souls, then we will destroy marriages, thusly families, and thusly church bodies. You see, this is not just an isolated issue for David Koresh and his compound. This is an issue of soul freedom in the body of Christ, that we are not under the thumb of the enemy, but we are in Christ. And all that is made of efficacious and available to us in the cross is ours for the taking. And we must take it to the enemy's destruction. Now the serpent was more cunning. You notice how I just made that word really big. Cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Here's our word, arum, 
Actually, you're supposed to sort of do something with your R, like ahrum. And that was pretty good. I was actually impressed with how I said that. Ahrum, which means subtle, shrewd, crafty, sly, sensible. This is a conspirator. This is the con man. You see, the serpent is more ahrum than any other beast of the field. So here's a little scripture from you from my made-up Bible here, Manipulations 3.1. Now the cult leader was more ahrum than any of the ordinary people on earth which the Lord God had made. I'm dead serious. I don't know what makes these people tick, but there is a satanic brilliance behind them because it's like, did they go to school for this? Is there a school for cult leadership? However, I'm not exactly sure how their training and their tutelage works, but if you begin to monitor their behavior in and amongst a small group of people, it is uncanny how similar it is. Almost as if they're exchanging notes and they have a secret society over here called cult leadership, you know, etc., or unlimited or international. I have no idea what it is other than the fact that the conspirator behind it is the same. And that's Satan himself. Five common elements of satanic ahrum control. So what I'm going to go through is I'm going to go through five different key things. And I want you to measure these things in your own soul as we go through. First of all, if you, you might not be a leader, but did you know that you can exhibit these behavior tactics in your relationships with others? You can do it in your marriage relationship. I can't tell you how many men exhibit controlling manipulative tactics in their marriages. They might not do it in their ministry, but they do it in their marriages. And they keep their wife in her place. Okay? I'm just here to tell you right now, that is just as much of cult behavior as anything else. In other words, we do not do that with our kids. We hold, Our kids are supposed to be in obedience, like with all gravity. It's, it uses the word gravity. That means reverence. In other words, where you actually have respect. Our children have respect for us. How does God control us? He doesn't control us by literally sticking us in chains and saying, you will do this or else. We love our God. And as a result, we willingly say, do with me what you will. I'm in covenant with you. I'm a bondservant. I want to serve you. It's a desire. It's a movement of soul that says, please, let me serve you. Okay, it's a completely different technique. So five common elements of satanic arum control. Number one, exposing conspiracy, danger, and intrigue. I've, I've written something out for each one of these just to try and articulate this because some of this stuff is somewhat difficult. But have you ever been around people where every story they tell is sort of dark and it's dangerous? And you actually, when you talk with them, there's a fear that is cultivated within you. And they're always talking, whether it's the UN and what the UN is doing or what's going to happen with the IRS or what's going to happen with, you know, some military force over in China and what's happening. I mean, there's all sorts of things that could be talked about in life, right? However, when you talk with these people, you have a tendency to feel a vulnerability, like an emptiness in your soul. So you're like, oh, dear Lord Jesus. It empties you of strength. Okay, I want you to recognize that just because someone, and I don't want you to be mean with each other in your minds right now, going, I've heard someone talk about those things. That's not, it's not the fact that you talk about it. I'm saying every time. I'm saying it's literally a quality of communication where there's doom and foreboding and conspiracy everywhere. The Illuminati is going to get you. 
Okay, now that's just a very common thing, but I want you to recognize this is a tactic of manipulation and control, and it's called fear. When people are fearful, they do not reason the same as when they're confident. So fear is literally a technique of the enemy. The spiritual manipulator inevitably has knowledge that is rare. He knows things about history that are not publicly recorded. He has insider information on leaders, both from yesteryear and today, that tarnishes their good reputations. You ever heard that? Oh, you ever heard this story about so-and-so? Yeah, they're not all that they were cracked up to be, I guess. They always have a story that slanders and that, that slurs. The stories could be true, of course. However, they always have them. And they're always casting doubt on any other source of truth that you would come to. You see, you don't recognize what they're doing, but what they're doing is they're diminishing every other outlet of confidence that you may have because of their knowledge. And you begin to come to them saying, I don't know about this leader. What do you think? You see, they're the depository now for fact in your life as opposed to the word of God and as opposed to any objective truth outside of them. He has a conspiracy for everything and he is a harbinger of bad news at every turn. He casts doubt on long-held orthodox truths Oh, yeah, they've always believed this in the church. Well, not really. You know, you go back to the early forefathers, and they believed this. And he has some new wrinkle and revelation that turns the whole system. And so we have to throw out and scrap all Christian history because this man knows something different. He throws dirt on upstanding moral leaders, and he dishes out stories that stimulate fear and a need to self-preserve and find a hole in the ground in which to hide. If the result of you being around any Christian leads you to anxiety and fear, something's wrong with that person. What the Christian should bring you is confidence and hope and life and joy and peace. We don't ponder what the enemy's doing. What's God doing? Who's bigger, greater is he that is in us than he that's in this world? So when you start talking about what he that is in this world is doing and making that your meditation, it's stimulating the wrong thing within the Christian. Instead of faith, it's fear. And fear is the great manipulative tool of the enemy. We must be watchful of what we entertain in our mind because we don't need to be around a cult leader for that to happen. When you gravitate towards the news, when you gravitate towards the newspaper, I don't care what it is, some journal that you're always reading and they have the insider scoop for you, be watchful of your soul because the enemy can leverage information and rare information out there to actually hinder you in your spiritual focus on Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul's short list. Think on these things. Break out the list. And if that thing that you're pondering right now is in his list of pure, noble, upright, good, well then sure, go ahead and think on that. But if it's not, kick it out. This manipulation is constantly trying to stick the wrong thing in our focal point. No, no, you have to consider this. If you don't, your family's going to be destroyed. Oh, I don't want my family to be destroyed. It's a game. It is literally a tactic of the devil. God uses the exact opposite. Truth. Truth makes free. Truth sets the soul at liberty. I'm not afraid of anything in this world. Why? I'm in Christ. I belong to him. We do not tremble before anything in this world. We only tremble before the living God. The manipulator's motto, cultivate an atmosphere of danger, fear, and dark foreboding. That's their first emphasis. Number two, 
making a lot of noise about nothing. And I want to emphasize the word nothing. These men or women have insider information. They have so much knowledge, it's scary. They're oftentimes guessing that they're brilliant. I mean, if you were to look at their IQ, they must be off the charts. I have no idea where they come from. But look at this. The spiritual manipulator talks a lot about the Bible, but never about what really matters in the Bible. Focusing on peripheral, non-essential subjects in the text. He dazzles his followers with a fascinating brilliance in arenas of offbeat and off-center value. For instance, his knowledge of a pre-Adamic a pre-Adamite world wholly spellbinds his adherents, while his secret understanding of the order and names of angel warriors brings out gasps of delight within his fellowship. This, of course, is not even mentioning his profound knowledge regarding number patterns within the Bible, hidden eschatological secrets in the book of Daniel, genealogical mysteries in the line of Christ, historic soteriological nuance once understood by the fathers of the faith and now lost, dietary mysteries that unlock the spiritual life of man, or the sacred knowledge of the inner voice that if heeded leads one into the deeper mysteries of the kingdom. The manipulator's motto, keep the focus off the foundation. You have to appear religious. You have to appear that you're talking about the Bible. Otherwise, you're going to be found out. But when you talk about the Bible, talk about everything but Jesus and the cross. You must keep their focus off the center. And if you do, you win. Number three, leveraging secrets. The spiritual manipulator specializes in leveraging all varieties of knowledge especially knowledge of his followers' weaknesses and past indiscretions. A spiritual manipulator must be a master at blackmail in his congregants without it ever being construed as being actual blackmail. He keeps elaborate file data on everything. Every fault is remembered and used when most appropriate. And for a spiritual manipulator to fully gain the trembling respect of his followers, it must be clearly demonstrated that all those secrets will go airborne the moment someone chooses to leave the environment. I'm just saying, if you leave, then I'm going to have to spew all this out. It's manipulative control that comes from the pit of hell. It's not how Jesus leads. Jesus forgives and forgets. A cult leader, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, never forgets a fault. And he leverages what is known as guilt unto condemnation. The enemy wields condemnation. That's not how the body of Christ works. This is dangerous. And if you're under the thumb of condemnation, if any human within the church is wielding it against your soul, get out and get out quick. This is not the fruit of the kingdom of heaven. The manipulator's motto, be quick to accuse and notice faults and never let an indiscretion be forgotten. It's tactical. They have entire filing cabinets sometimes. Everything monitored. Bug rooms so they can hear hidden conversations. They can leverage knowledge. That's how every politician works, isn't it? Well, they're oftentimes built out of the same exact mold. Number four, demonstrating a special connection with God that others cannot have. I was around this one young woman in our ministry quite a few years back, and she always heard from God. And she always was saying, God told me this. And she was very free at saying that, which made me uncomfortable. But, you know, you don't want to 
edit someone's statements when they hear from God. You're just like, well, you know, what am I going to say? And they heard from God. However, you know, when she heard from God that it was okay for her to date a married man, uh, you know, uh, that seemed to catch me a little funny. And then some of the other things that she felt God had said, no, I give you full freedom to watch these debased movies because, no, sexuality is actually a glorious thing and you can celebrate me and bring glory to me as you watch these things. This isn't the voice of God. However, here's what I watched happen. This girl had a unique connection with God and I watched how it manipulated the others around her to have a trust in her. They would go to her and say, what are you hearing? What are you thinking in this situation? And though she wasn't a leader, she was a leader. She was just not an official leader. And so as a result, when she came and played her cards, and she actually began to turn, I remember one of the great statements uh, was she heard from God that this environment was self-righteous and unloving, and God was not happy with it. In other words, now she's hearing things that indict the leadership around her. What's the next step? Well, come with me. We will be safe from them. Okay, she has hidden knowledge. She has an in with God. Very dangerous. The spiritual manipulator must prove to have a divine in with God. This in is proven in a variety of ways. The most common is through supernatural words of knowledge, oftentimes that come through bugging people's lives. Through specific prayers answered with seeming miraculous power, like the distribution of a special fragrance into the air ducts that would cause it to appear as if the Holy of Holies has literally come to this earth at their prayer request. Amazing. And with prophetic projections proving true. Once this special connection is established, the stage is set for the leader to now gain extra biblical revelations from God. You see, if they can prove that they have an in with God, it only follows suit that God would speak to them in even a greater way. And so now the stage has been set in their little small cluster for an extra biblical revelation to be given. These extra-biblical revelations work to even further establish the leader's position because oftentimes they'll even mention the leader and how important the leader is. That's what's in the extra-biblical revelation. And often these revelations hold sway in and amongst the followers with equal or oftentimes even greater authority than the Bible. The manipulator's motto, make everyone dependent upon your unique ability to hear from God and know his mind on every matter. Number five, keeping people close. A cult is not a sending organization, it's a collecting organization. In other words, your goal is to keep people and hold them under your control and not let them get out where they can hear information that would contradict what you are teaching them. The spiritual manipulator specializes in creating elaborate webs of interdependency amongst his adherents. The more complex and intertwined, the better. These include co-signings, shared businesses, the finance and financial overlaps that complicate the notion of ever leaving. Intermarriages, shared housing, interlinked reputations. These bizarre interdependencies cause most, even those aware that they are caught in a web, to choose to stay rather than go through the immense hassle of ever leaving. It's like, I, it would be such an enormous deal to get out of this. I'll just stay. Even though they know something's wrong, but, you know, maybe everything's wrong everywhere else, too. We'll just sort of accept our lot in life and stay here in this mess instead of go to someone else's mess. It's a defeated mentality, but it's bred in and through these weird interdependencies. Here, I'll loan you some money. No, don't, don't worry about paying it back. I said, well, don't you remember when I loaned you that money when you were in a time of need? It's like, yeah, but you said don't pay it back. 
Well, I'm just saying, you owe me now. It is how the mob works. You get a little scratch in your back, and then suddenly at the most inopportune time, they turn their back to you and say, yeah, right here, right here. Right here, yeah, a little scratch there. Well, if I do that, I'm literally incriminating myself. Hey, you know what? You, I scratched your back. Now you owe me. This is literally diabolical. And it must be stamped out within the church of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, with stamping it out within our own souls. The manipulator's motto, seek to complicate people's lives, irretrievably intertwine them, overlap them, and intermarry them. Five key contrasts, arum control versus spirit control. So let's just look at these back and forth. Arum control, which exposes a conspiracy, danger, and intrigue within the world. And its motto is cultivate an atmosphere of danger, fear, and foreboding. Look at how the spirit of God works. Exposing the conspiracy, danger, and intrigue within the human soul. Not, Not what the UN is doing. What the flesh is doing. No, let's point in here. If you want to know about a conspiracy to destroy you, look at what's happening within your own body. That's what the Spirit of God does. And then look at the motto for the Spirit. Set the soul free with the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. So arum control makes a lot of noise about nothing and keeps the focus off the foundation. What does the Spirit of God do? It makes a lot of noise about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You want to hear the Spirit of God speak? He's going to be talking about Jesus and Him crucified. The gospel is going to be constantly coming forth. The motto, build a strong foundation that can stand the tests of time and endure the winds and the rains that will certainly beat against it. Arum control leverages secrets, and the motto is be quick to accuse and notice fault and never let an indiscretion be forgotten. Well, how does the Spirit work? It forgives and forgets. The motto is, wield the power of the blood of Jesus in order to remove all satanic control points within the soul and prepare an avenue of unrestricted freedom under the limitless grace of God. It's the exact opposite. Arum control demonstrates a special connection with God that others cannot have. And the motto that goes with that is that make everyone dependent upon your unique ability to hear from God and know his mind on every matter. What does the Spirit of God say? Make the special connection with God common unto all who believe. What does the Spirit do? He doesn't just take one leader and say, oh, you know, that's the only one I can speak through. That's the only one I can speak to. That's the only one that will ever understand Scripture. No. He uses all of us. And he'll use the children amongst us. And he'll speak to them in the Word of God just as much as he will the aged. God uses a body, not just a right pinky. He uses the whole kit and caboodle. The motto, make everyone dependent on Jesus and Jesus alone. Arum control. It keeps people close. It seeks to complicate people's lives, irretrievably intertwine them, overlap them, and intermarry them. What does the Spirit do? It sends them forth. Well, isn't that what the gospel is all about? Go! The motto, labor to free people from all worldly encumbrance. What does the gospel do? It actually says, yeah. Get rid of anything that hinders you, all the weights that are besetting you so that you're free. It's the exact opposite of what's happening. That you might freely and readily go into all the earth to preach the gospel and make disciples of all men for the glory of Jesus Christ and not the glory of any man or organization. Three reasons sincere believers end up trapped in a controlling spiritual environment. Isn't that a big question that's in our mind? Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone follow something so despicable and so obvious? As, as we're listening, it's like, yeah, I wouldn't 
get involved in that. Why do sincere believers get involved? Because some of you in here could probably testify, ah, been there. I've actually been in that. So why? Well, this is at least me hazarding an educated guess. The need to belong. The dire hunger for community and belonging causes them to overlook strange characteristics of a group or leader. You know when you're lonely? When you felt like the outcast and now a group is actually bringing you in and showing you love and attention? Whew. I mean, the group might be a little strange. Eh, that leader might be a little odd. Says some weird things. Never heard that before. Don't know that I even agree with it. But you know what? They love me. And usually a cult will rescue someone. They'll do a very good deed. They'll give money. They'll serve in such a way that actually says, oh, I owe you one. They say, why don't you come to our meeting? And it's actually sort of what we do in a healthy way, too. We're out there giving the love of Jesus and serving. And so it's a counterfeit at a very close level. But the need to belong. Number two, there's a disgust with their own personal weakness. You see, when you are so disgusted with the defeat in your life, when you're so fed up with the fact that I can't live this. Listen to this. The lack of discipline and moral muscle leads to a desire to want to follow someone who is strong rather than being strong themselves. See, there's a bait that says you can't be strong, which is true, by the way. However, where are you going to find your strength? In a man? And so when we see a leader that is strong, which, by the way, I'm a big fan of strong Christian leadership. However, this is a form of leadership that is baiting in the weak to be strength for them. Say, you know what, I know you're weak, but I will be strong for you. I know you don't have much understanding of Scripture, but I will understand Scripture for you. I know you can't hear from God, but I will hear God for you. And as a result, they're like, oh, that's a lot easier. I don't need to do all this work, and I haven't been able to do it in the past anyways. And so it's plain upon our own disgust with our personal weakness. You know that God leverages our disgust with our personal weakness, but not to lead us to a man. Not to lead us to an environment, to lead us to the cross. Number three, eager to prove righteous. You see, when you live under the thumb of the weight of hell that is standing before you, there is a desire to do the good deed. There is a desire to be the good person. And it's, it drives us. And so when we end up in a situation like this, due to a subtle twist in their understanding of righteousness, they try and achieve righteousness in their own strength. Their dedication and loyalty unto a church or ministry, though that church or ministry be a bit bizarre, is their means of being right in God's eyes. And so their loyalty unto a leader, their loyalty, their submission, they're saying, oh, I'm going to submit, I'm going to do this right, I'm going to be a good, dedicated follower. Not bad stuff. However, the enemy is leveraging their misunderstanding of righteousness, and he's playing it against their soul. Where do we find our righteousness? In Christ Jesus. Not in our dedication, our loyal following to a church or a ministry leader. It's in Christ Jesus that we are found righteous. And when that gets twisted, we become vulnerable. The other thing that was mentioned to me as we were preparing to do this today is there's a fourth thing that I, I think it is worthwhile mentioning, and that is momentum. That you can come into an environment which is perfectly healthy when it starts, and then someone who is manipulating with the control of the flesh will begin to take leadership. And it might not even be the original leader. Or there might not have been a defined leader in the group. It was just a nice company of believers where everyone was seeking Jesus Christ. 
And because of your loyalty unto the other people in the group and your respect for them and your love for them, you endure, but there's a momentum that has pushed you so far that you continue in it. And then the intertwinings begin to take place and the threats and the blackmail begins to be established. I think that's a perfectly reasonable way of saying another reason how we can get snapped. Checking your own soul. So again, I don't want us looking out there. I don't want us just saying, oh, I can't believe they do that. Or I can't believe anyone would fall for these things. You know how many of us have fallen for this in our own soul? And we have submitted to the ruling control and manipulation of the flesh in our life for years and have been subservient to it? Do not ever nitpick someone else out there for what they have done when we ourselves, every single one of us is guilty for being subservient to the powers of the cult leader within. Check in your own soul. Are you so overly hungry to belong that you will overlook on biblical attributes just to fit in somewhere? Do you suffer from soul lassitude? That means weakness, just sort of a, a floppiness and moral laziness. Are you desiring someone else to do hard work, obedience, study, prayer, and spiritual thinking for you? Three, where do you find your righteousness? Is it in your loyalty unto men and your approval from earthly leadership? This is a very common thing for us, where we grew up looking for the approval of our father or our relatives or our church, and we didn't find it, and so we feel sort of ostracized. You can come into any group, even healthy groups, and be seeking the wrong form of affirmation. And it's a vulnerability which makes you susceptible. You must know where your affirmation comes from. It's not from your good deeds. It's from his good deed. He did the work. That's where we find our solace. That's where we find our strength and our salvation. His work. The ten worst things a cult leader can say. And thusly, the top ten best things a true godly leader needs to shout at the top of his lungs. Test everything I say against the Bible. Well, that's a pretty dumb cult leader who wants to say that. Test everything I say against the Bible. Test every little thing I say against the 66 canonized books found within the Word of God. For the Word of God is correct on every matter. And where I disagree with the Word of God, throw out my opinion. The Bible is 100% right, and if I ever disagree with it, I'm 100% wrong. If I write something contrary to the Word of God, burn the book I write. If I ever receive a revelation from God that in any way contradicts or adds to the canon of Scripture, treat it with contempt. If I counsel you to do something contrary to the Word of God, disregard my counsel as foolish and fleshly. So, if you're plotting and planning to be a cult leader someday, you might want to avoid that. In Acts 17, the Berean Christians were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Test it. Be like the Bereans. Number two, go. Get out of here. You have a job to do. At Ellerslie, we have six graduations of students a year. We are a sending organization, constantly saying, go, go, go. And guess what? It hurts to say go because we love these students that come here. And yet, what are we here for? We're here to populate heaven and to bring glory to King Jesus, not to populate Windsor. <laughs> go, get out of here. You have a job to do. 
We're not digging bomb shelters and hiding in them. Rather, we're climbing to the top of mountains and preaching from them. Our protection isn't in the folds of a group, a compound, or an environment. Our protection is in a person named Jesus Christ. We are called to go, not stay. We are called to spread good news and not keep it for ourselves. Jesus said, go. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Number three. So the, one of the, this is the top ten worst things a cult leader could ever say. So, again, if you're a cult leader, you wouldn't want to say this. Your spiritual life can thrive without me. If I can be a tool in the hand of God to help you along in your spiritual life, then great. But I am not your spiritual life. Jesus is. I cannot save you. Only he can. I can only lead you to him. I am not a destination in and of myself. I'm merely a road sign that points to the only source of true salvation. In 1 Corinthians 1, we see Paul basically discussing the exact same thing. There was a weakness in the Corinthian church, and they were arguing about who baptized them. Hey, I was baptized by Apollos. I'm Paul. I'm Peter. Now this I say, that every one of you says, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? That's an incredible line. Was Paul crucified for you? Do not put weight in a man. Put weight at Jesus and the cross. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. We do not do this in our name. We do our work in the name of Jesus for Jesus. And as Peter was coming in, this is when Cornelius, the Gentile, literally was, an angel speaks to him to literally go and seek this man named Peter who has the words of life for him. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up saying, stand up. I myself also am a man. Do not worship me. Do not place me too high in your life. Stand up. I myself am also a man. Number four, truth is not exclusive to our little group. You see, if you're a cult leader, you don't want them to know that. You want them to feel like the only place on earth that they can find these notions, these ideas, is here. They're all lost out there. They're all going to hell. There's only a little group of ten that are going to make it into heaven, and aren't you glad you're one of them? Truth is not exclusive to our little group. We are not the only place where the words of salvation can be found. Though the church be weak, God always has his people. The true church is out there working, laboring, and often unpublicized and unknown. There are pastors all over this country, continent, and world that are preaching the life-giving words of Jesus Christ and his glorious cross work. Do not think for a moment that just because you haven't yet met these other voices that this little cluster of believers sitting around you right now is the only group on earth that hasn't bent their knees to Baal. And this is... Jesus speaking, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these stones, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You know what? The words of Christ are going to to be testified of. You know, the glory of Christ will be made manifest in this earth, and if humans aren't used, rocks will do it. God will give himself a witness in this world. That's the simple point of it. There's always a remnant. There's always the voice of truth, even if it seems that a dark age has once again swept this earth. 
Do not think that we have the only glimpse of light. We labor to spread the light. But that light is all over this world, oftentimes in prison chambers and in chains, singing songs. Elijah said, God, I'm left alone, and they seek my life. God responded, Elijah, I've reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. You're not the only one. That's the message of triumphant Christianity throughout the ages. However, a cult leader will always leverage to say we're the only ones. And it creates, again, a barricade compound mentality where we must protect ourselves from all the evil out there because the evil wants to destroy us, which is the truth. However, we don't barricade ourselves. We go out to the top of a mountain and speak it, knowing full well that that cross that they've erected is where we're going to end up dying. It's okay. We understand what this life is about, and it's not to hole ourselves up in a bomb shelter. It's to go out and literally let the glory of God detonate in and through our lives in this earth. Number five. Let God direct your giving. Give to the work he asks you to give to, even if it's not here. Well, what idiot is going to say that? As a believer in Jesus Christ, your first loyalty is unto him. Not me or this ministry. You are responsible to give of yourself and your resources unto him. Not me or this ministry. If God directs you to give elsewhere, then you give elsewhere. If God is building this ministry, then he will supply for its financial needs without even the slightest arm twisting from me. You don't owe me anything. I like this last line. You owe God everything. Not because I desire a gift, says Paul, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Isn't that a great statement? He's basically saying, I have the right to ask for a gift. However, I want you to know, it's not that I desire a gift. What does he desire? But I desire fruit that may abound to your account. He's for them, for their edification, for the glory of the king. Not that he's just desiring gifts. He doesn't want it to come to him. He wants it to come to Jesus. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, any environment that plies that twisted arm that says if you're truly a Christian, you'd give to this ministry, be very watchful. You see... Jesus deserves everything, not a ministry and a man. Now, God may move to give to a ministry or the work of a man. Happens all the time, and it's perfectly healthy. However, be very watchful of the arm twisting and manipulation. Look at this. So let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not as a leader purposes in his heart, saying, I feel called of God to tell you that you need to give $10,000 today. That's his heart. You must be spoken to by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God works in the body, not in and through just one man or woman. And God loves a cheerful giver, by the way. If you want to have cheerful givers, you don't twist arms. Number six. Bad idea for a cult leader to say this. I'm not perfect, but Jesus is. I'm not a finished product, and when closely examined, you would find that I'm still a picture of incompleteness in my spiritual maturity. I'm not holy, but Jesus is holy. I'm not righteous, but Jesus is righteous. I'm not perfect love, but Jesus is perfect love. Apart from Jesus, I'm not perfect, holy, righteous, or loving. Listen to this. But apart from me, he still is perfect, holy, righteous, and loving. So who needs who? 
I need him. He doesn't need me. And likewise, you need him. And you don't need me. Who is the one that saves? It's not an earthly leader. It's our heavenly captain of the host. The author of salvation. That's who we turn to. And if a leader is worth his salt in the church of Jesus Christ, he knows that he has nothing to give other than Jesus. I just turned to Jesus. Oh, I do wish I could save souls. There's a desire that I have that I wish I could do more. However, the strength of the saints is in the fact that we can't. And we must become flow-through channels for the grace of God. Because if we could, we would do it ourselves. We would be the ones leading the church instead of Jesus. He is the head, not us. Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, says Paul. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Number seven, I don't deserve special treatment. Oh, see, when you're a leader, you can always get special treatment. And so that's just a bad thing to say. It's like, you see, a good congregation is always saying, let's treat our pastor special. But what does a pastor say? I don't deserve special treatment. A pastor must take the lead in washing feet, not be the one that just stretches out his smelly toes. And, Please, could you wash them for me? Yeah, that feels good. Right, right there, right there. Oh, yeah. Though I be the leader, I am not above scrutiny, accountability, and character evaluation. In fact, I'm technically more responsible for every word spoken, every thought thought, and every action performed. If I am ever rude, discourteous, disrespectful, dishonoring, harsh, inappropriate, short-tempered, controlling, abusive, manipulative, or anything else from the flesh family behaviors, it's as wrong for me to behave in those ways as it is for anyone else to behave in those ways. It's not like some special thing where if you're a leader, you know, your life is hard and you have a lot of difficulties and therefore you are given an allowance of flesh. It's like, yeah, you can be harsh and demeaning and controlling. I mean, you're the leader. Leaders can do those things. The rest of, you know, the congregation, they have to walk a fine line on these things. No. The leader all the more has the weight of responsibility to showcase Jesus Christ. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, that's Paul's attitude. He's less than the least of all the saints. You see, his basic attitude in how he approaches the church. He doesn't treat himself as above the saints. He treats himself as the servant to the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Who receives a stricter judgment? Uh-huh. Those that teach. Those that lead and those that are imparting. Whew. You see, we are held to a higher level of accountability, not a lower one. Nor did we eat... Now, this is a combination of two different passages. You'll see the dot, dot, dots in the middle. Nor did we eat, this is Paul speaking, anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Did, if anyone deserved to be given a free pass and a, and a meal, it would have been Paul. However, he purposely, so as not to be a burden to the saints, toiled night and day. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. It's his attitude. He's not above them. He's not looking to be treated as royalty. He'll work harder than all the rest of them. Number eight, Jesus forgives thoroughly and completely, and I choose to do the same. 
If I don't offer forgiveness when repentance and confession of fault is present, then my leadership is a miscarriage of grace. For whenever I have repented and sought forgiveness from Jesus, he always has forgiven me. His cross work allows for him to not just forgive, but also to forget my past indiscretions. And so it is when someone comes to me in repentance seeking forgiveness, I must forgive them as Jesus has forgiven me. If I keep a record of someone's wrongs, then my God will keep a record of mine. But since my Lord chooses not to remember and keep track of my wrongs, I'm ready to throw out all records that I might keep on others. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave it I in the person of Christ. Listen to this. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. Paul is saying forgiveness must be operational in the body of Christ. When you forgive, I'll forgive too. In other words, we are quick to allow the movement of grace and forgiveness in our midst. Why? Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. This is his game. Unforgiveness, grievance, resentment, and bitterness, the enemy's game. And if he can cultivate it in a small body, he's won. Number nine, don't be quick to judge the motives of others. Be gracious. Be merciful in your thoughts. Men that are quick to judge are quick to be caught in the same fault that they were quick to carelessly accuse others of walking in. Be slow to conclude in matters of spiritual motive. First, remove the plank from your own eye so that you can see clearly enough to help your brother with the speck of sawdust in his eye. Don't cast slurs against fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't throw terms like heretic, cult leader, deceiver, and false teacher around loosely unless you wish to have those same terms come back upon your own head someday soon. Be quick to give grace and quick to believe in others' testimony of faith and not quick to question and doubt. Sure, there is certainly deception out there, but do not assume that everyone is deceived, for there are many in this earth that are true unto Jesus Christ. I know the feelings of saying, as all gone south, truth has fallen in the streets. I don't know if there's a living person alive that actually cares about the gospel of truth. I know those, those feelings. But I want to assure you, after traveling the world, that yes, there's some weird people out there. And I've seen some grotesque things. But there's a remnant. And there's a body of Christ and a bride of Christ that truly loves and esteems Jesus Christ. Some of them are caught in very unhealthy situations. But they genuinely want Jesus. They genuinely esteem his word. They don't know any different. They don't understand how to seek him. They've never seen the body of Christ healthy. Many of us can attest to that. We've seen a warped version of the body of Christ, and as a result, we're struggling to understand that it can function in a healthy way. However, I want you to believe what the Word of God says. I want you to believe that the same God that has always been around throughout all of history is the same God that attends the church today. The same God that has brought revival to the church in the past is the same God that we turn to today. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. It's an attitude of the body. We are gracious. We are merciful. There is a balance to this, and yes, there are things that need to be called out. Paul says, mark those who are deceiving the body. You know what? If something's deceiving the body, it needs to be marked so that it doesn't continue to harm. But we need to be slow to come to conclusions on these things. It's called due process. It's a fair trial. In other words, many people will throw slurs because they're uncomfortable with things. We can't be one of them. 
we do not accuse just because things are different. There are a lot of things in the body of Christ that we may be uncomfortable with. You know, if I was around at Pentecost and these disciples were running around speaking in tongues, that would have been a little awkward for me to say, is this God? Think about it. God's God. The way he chooses to do things is his business. It's our job to submit to his word. Even where it's uncomfortable, we submit to it. So yes, there's some weird stuff out there. And I'm not going to say weird stuff just automatically makes it healthy either. Okay, there's some funny people out there that are a little unstable and they, they work out of fear and trepidation and anxiety. We must be composed in our soul, built upon a rock, and we must be the strong ones to speak truth into the funky environments. Number 10, the only message that counts is Jesus and him crucified. I'm not going to talk about peripheral, debatable, private pet doctrines. I'm not going to give you any special new novel notions. I'm not going to try and impress you with my vast array of knowledge on everything immaterial and non-important. Rather, I wish to talk about Jesus. Jesus first, Jesus foremost, Jesus always. Every time you talk with me, I want you to come away thinking about him and not me. Every time you hear me speak, I want you to come away more in love with him and not more impressed with me. If you are thinking about me, then I am in the way. I must decrease that he might increase. There's Paul. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know that Paul was accused of being foolish? Idiotes is the Greek word. Idiot! Because his message seemed too limited. He didn't sound intelligent. The true leaders of the body of Christ don't give a wit, a care in the world about the opinions of this world or even their congregation. If they are called to speak truth, they must speak it. Whether or not they're deemed unintellectual, the one-note church, they will mockingly say. That's all the guy ever says. Jesus, him crucified. There's more to the Bible, buddy. Everything in the Bible is interpreted through that lens. Everything. Any topic I bring up, if it doesn't come back to Jesus and him crucified, is an errant message. That is the end of all truth. Because Jesus is the truth. He's a person. And his work on the cross is the full manifestation of the love, the justice, the wrath, the perfection, the holiness of God Almighty. And that resurrection from that tomb is a result of that cross. And that ascension to the right hand of the Father is a result of that cross. And that outpoured spirit that enables us to live the life that otherwise we can't live is a result of that cross. And the coming again of our Jesus to rescue his bride and to destroy everything that opposes his regime is a work of that cross. Everything comes down to Jesus and him crucified. We get that as the foundation and suddenly we stand firm. Truth will make us free. He must increase, but I must decrease. So we started with the title, A Cult Leader's Worst Nightmare. I'm going to speak very bluntly about what a cult leader's worst nightmare is. It's the truth that sets all men free. You see, if truth is allowed to shine, cockroaches are seen. When the light comes on in a dark room, suddenly you see all the other critters that are in there. 
When we turn on light, suddenly all deception has no room to hide. We need truth. This is the key ingredient in the church of Jesus Christ today. It's the word of God. We cannot be afraid of the word of God. Yes, I recognize it says things that are politically incorrect. But guess what? Our society is wrong if it disagrees with the correct words of Scripture. Our God and his perspective and his opinion is right. Who are you agreeing with? Do you agree with political correctness or do you agree with your God? You pick your side. We do not side with the world's opinion. We side with God's opinion. We don't side with just men's opinion. We side with God's opinion. If those men, even the ones we respect, contradict the word of God that we serve, we will say, they're wrong. This is still right. The truth that sets all men free. Well, what else is a cult leader's worst nightmare? A well-discipled church that knows the power of God into salvation. You see, when the cult of the soul is dealt with and the flesh is removed from its position of power and the Spirit of God is able to come in and dwell within a man, suddenly that man is not as susceptible to being subservient to the same thing he was just set free from. He recognizes it. He can sniff it in the air. No, no. I was set free from that. There's no way I'm coming back under it. Number three, a truly rescued soul that seeks not the approval of any man, but simply the glory of his beloved king. What's a cult leader's worst nightmare? That, a truly rescued soul that seeks not the approval of any man. If you're not kowtowing to try and gain favor from a man, and you know where your favor comes from, it comes from Jesus. And suddenly you're not susceptible to the same thing that everyone else is. And what else is a cult leader's worst nightmare? Hopefully, this message. That's the desire, is that truth would permeate our hearts and that this manipulative, controlling practice of the enemy would no longer have sway in the church. Whether it's at the individual level, the family level, because like I said in the beginning, if we are bringing any of these manipulative, controlling tactics into our homes, we're as guilty as anyone else out there. We live as Christ treats us, we treat those around us. That's our model. And the way Christ treats us, he literally bends his knee and washes our feet, says, I'll die for you. I mean, this is the exact opposite. You see, the leader today, the manipulative leader today wants special treatment. And Jesus says, I will take the lowest place. He became a worm and no man that we might be saved. Lord Jesus, may you bring back leaders that are willing to be worms and no men. That's a funny way of saying it. But men and women who don't seek the limelight, who don't seek control, who don't seek a following, but seek nothing more than the glory of King Jesus. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.